Section 20 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Sir Austin Henry Layard, Part 1. 1817 to 1894. Modern Archaeology. By William Hayes Ward, D.D., L.L.D. It was twenty-three long centuries ago that a Greek soldier of fortune, who had the honor to be also a disciple of Socrates, was leading ten thousand mercenaries back to their native land after their famous failure to set the younger Cyrus on the throne of Persia. Clericus and the other generals had been treacherously murdered. Dispirited, almost hopeless, on their way to the longed-for Black Sea, in anticipation of the perilous and tedious journey, past wild mountains and wilder curds, they toiled up the valley of the Tigris River. Of one incident of their journey, their historian makes no record. They reached the spot where now stands the city of Mosul. On the bank of the river, their eyes fell on a bare and lofty hill. They did not know, they never suspected. Xenophon wrote no word of it that under that hill lay buried the ruins of one of the mightiest conquering cities that had ever ruled the world. From the palaces of that hill, Ninus and Semiramis and Sardanapalus had led their conquering armies, all now covered with silence. Two centuries earlier, in 606 BC, there had occurred one of the most tremendous catastrophes recorded in all the grim annals of war. After a thousand years of primacy in the east, but twenty years after the death of Sardanapalus, the Greek name of Ashurbanipal, who had carried his armies to Egypt and had made his capital the center of the world's culture and magnificence, as it was of its cruel and hated power, Nineveh was captured, buried, and utterly desolated by a horde of savage Scythians from the mountains of the north and east, such people as we now call the Kurds. Its palaces had no lofty Greek columns to stand for memorials, as at Palmyra or Persepolis. And when the outer casings of brick and alabaster were cracked away, and the ashes of the upper stories and the clay of the inner constructions, soaked by the rains, covered the ruins of temple and palace, nothing was left to mark the site but the grass-covered hill. No wonder that the learned scholar of Socrates saw nothing, knew nothing of the city, most glorious and most detested of all the cities of the earth. But in its day, the overthrow of Nineveh and the destruction of the Assyrian Empire had been the most terrible event in the world's history. How the Hebrew prophets gloated over it. Where now is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness walked, the lions whelp, and none made them afraid? Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and rapine. The prey departeth not. The noise of the whip and the noise of the rattling of wheels and prancing horses and bounding chariots and horsemen mounting and the flashing sword and the glittering spear and a multitude of slain and such a great heap of corpses and there is no end of the bodies. There is no assuaging of the hurt. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the report of thee clap their hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? And another prophet had uttered the curse. The pelican and the porcupine shall lodge in the capitals thereof. Their voice shall sound in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds. For he hath laid bare the cedar work. 
this is the joyous city that dwelt carelessly that said in her heart i am and there is none besides me how is she become a desolation a place for beasts to lie down in every one that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand thus fell nineveh amid the universal rejoicing of the nations and thus seventy years later fell babylon also which in the short interval nebuchadnezzar had made more magnificent than nineveh had been beautified for its capture by cyrus but before babylon was the capital of chaldea or nineveh the capital of assyria the city of kala had been the seat of its kings and a mighty mound they call it nimrod now as high as st paul's steeple old travellers loved to say marks the place on the east bank of the tigris twenty miles south of nineveh and before kala assyria had an earlier capital forty miles still nearer the babylonian border at asher now kala shirget on the west of the tigris and each capital had its palaces and records and all are now equally buried in clay and utter oblivion and before the babylon of nebuchadnezzar and long centuries before nineveh or kala or asher there had been mighty kingdoms in babylonia of which the world had quite forgot the names only vague rumors remaining in song or legend of nimrod and keterlomer and ur of the chaldees only what was preserved in the dimmest records of the hebrew scriptures empires were lost buried in kiliads of forgetfulness would they ever be recovered and how much else was lost what kingdoms what empires buried before hebrew or greek history began to take notice of the world outside and put them in books no one knew no one knows yet although so much has been found the fame of egypt was never quite forgotten nor all its history for egypt was the world's granary and closely accessible to the ships of corinth and rome and egypt never lost her civilization in all her long succession of enslavement but what memory had been kept of the ionia and greece of the days before homer what of the early civilization of cyprus and crete only the name of minos a judge in hell what of persia and elam were they uninhabited before the times of xerxes and cyrus and who were these kings cyrus and xerxes whose names burst upon us with dim light out of a black antiquity even they were but shadows on a screen just seen and disappearing what kings and kingdoms came before them and passed away has history no record not a word only black vacuity has been left behind them and there was that other empire of the east that of the hittites which we now know ruled asia minor and syria and contested the rule of the world with assyria and egypt centuries before agamemnon and achilles but so utterly buried and forgotten that not a line of its history was left not even enough to let the sharpest scholar ask a question or suspect that it ever built capitals and fought victories and produced a civilization the harvest of which we still enjoy nothing was left of them but their names in a hebrew list of tribes amorites and jebusites and hivites and hittites yet all these lost tribes nay lost nations had left their records behind them only they were buried underground and out of sight what a travesty it is on history and civilization what an impeachment of the glory of these later christian centuries that the lands which these old empires crowded with a busy population should now be among the most desolate and inaccessible on the face of the earth there we see the curse of the moslem reign and still more of the turkish government 
Wherever the Turk has carried the sword and the Koran, there is blight and death. Only as soldiers and scholars of Europe have forced their way into these seats of ancient empires has it been possible to ask and learn what is buried beneath their gray desolation. The man who did more than any other to awaken the interest of the world in the search for forgotten empires was Sir Henry Layard, the excavator of Nineveh. But before his day, another man had startled the world with what we may call the discovery of Egypt. That man was Napoleon Bonaparte, the man whose sword was a plowshare turning up the fallow fields of Europe and sowing strange crops of tyranny and liberty, and whose ambition it was to set up a new throne in the land of the pharaohs and Ptolemies. The mighty ruins of Karnak and the imperishable pyramids filled him with amazement, and he set the scholars of France to work to publish in massive folios the wonders of that most ancient land. Then was found the Rosetta Stone, with its inscription in two languages, Greek, which any scholar could read, and the Egyptian hieroglyphics, which no living man could read. But here was the key. The words Ptolemy and Cleopatra were in the Greek text, and it was not hard to find what were the combinations of characters that stood for these words in Egyptian. The letters P, T, and L were in both names. The hieroglyphic signs found in both names must be these three letters. That beginning gave all the other signs in both words, and the rest of the alphabet soon followed. Justly great is the fame of the Frenchman Champollion, who has the honor of having first deciphered and read this lost language, and opened to us the secret treasures of its history and religion. But with the exploration of Egypt, the scholarship of the world was satisfied for fifty years. No one seemed to think to ask what might be hid under the soil of nearer Palestine and Syria and Asia Minor. Much less did they seek to uncover the buried capitals of Assyria and Babylonia. Scholarship was devoted to books, to old manuscripts and convent libraries, to recovering what the wise men of Greece and Rome had written, and trying to wrest new facts out of their blundering old compilations of ancient history. It did not occur to them that a hundred kings and ten thousand merchants and priests might have left the stories of their conquests or contracts or liturgies, unrotted in the wet soil, imperishably preserved to be the record of commerce and empires as old and as great as those of Egypt, but far deeper covered with oblivion. But there they were, kept safe for twenty, thirty, fifty centuries, until the man should come whose mission it was to find them. More than one such man came in the middle of the last century, but one man is preeminent and typical of all the rest, Sir Austin Henry Layard. Before him, one Frenchman, M. Paul Emile Botta, had made a fine dash on a palace city a dozen miles north of Nineveh and had opened wonders such as the world had never seen before. But the man whose energy was fullest of impulse whose enthusiasm compelled British ambassadors and ministers and parliaments to do his bidding, who aroused the world to the importance of the exploration and disinterment of the monuments of Babylonia and Assyria, was the Englishman Layard. He had a youthful passion for adventure and slender means to gratify it. I wish you could see him as he is pictured in the volume which gives the story of his early adventures before he had settled on his life work of exploration. There he stands clad in his Bakhtiari costume, the dress of a mountain tribe in Persia which asserted its independence of Tehran. He has a well-knit frame, fit to endure hardships. 
He stands holding the tall matchlock, the curved scimitar by his side, and the long pistol and the dagger in his belt. Above the yellow shoes and party-woven stockings, a red silk robe falls to his ankles, and over that, a green silk garment reaches to his knees, and yet over that, a shorter and richly embroidered coat with open sleeves is held close about the body by a wide silken sash woven in the brightest of red and gold, and holding the weapons attached to his waist. On his head is a low, flat cap, visorless in front, but with a broad bow in place of a feather, all striped with the richest embroidery, and with a wide tassel of the same material falling far down his back. But the face, with its short beard dyed dark with henna, and its blue eyes, is not that of a warrior, but of a serious scholar or diplomatist. And he needed all the force of courage and all the arts of diplomacy for the work he had to do. Layard's early training was in the line of preparation for his life's work. Much of his boyhood was spent in Italy, where he acquired a taste for the fine arts, and as much knowledge of them as a child could obtain who was constantly in the society of artists and connoisseurs. At about the age of 16, he was sent to England to study the law, for which he was destined by his parents. After six years in the office of a solicitor, and in the chambers of an eminent conveyancer, for that is the way that lawyers were educated then, he determined to leave England and seek a career elsewhere. He had a relative in Ceylon, who gave him hopes of securing a position there, and for Ceylon he started. A friend of his, ten years older, was bound for the same destination, both fond of adventure, and they agreed to go together, and to go as far as they could by land, instead of taking the long sea journey around the Cape of Good Hope. Across Europe they passed to Constantinople, through Austria, Dalmatia, Montenegro, Albania, and Bulgaria, thence across Asia Minor to Syria and Palestine, thence to Aleppo, and down the Tigris to Baghdad. It was an extraordinary and adventurous journey, often dangerous, but greater danger was to follow. Layard had learned some Turkish, and now he spent the long weeks in Baghdad in the study of Persian. His companion was quite familiar with Arabic. Before they left England, they had received good advice from Sir John MacNeill, the British representative at the court of the shop. You must either travel as important personages, with a retinue of servants and an adequate escort, or alone as poor men, with nothing to excite the cupidity of the people amongst whom you will have to mix. If you cannot afford to adopt the first course, you must take the latter. The latter they were forced to take. Many a young man has the gift to acquire languages, almost any Oriental can talk three or four, and the ability to rough it and live on the fare of the people, though barbarous. And many a man has the spirit of adventure, but this young man had one peculiar and unusual qualification that directed him to his future career. As a child, he had read the Arabian Nights with intense delight, with their stories centered about Baghdad. Then every book of Eastern adventure, every bit of travel in Syria, Arabia, or Persia that he could find, he had eagerly devoured. It was his day and night's longing that he might visit strange lands of history and make explorations and discoveries. So wherever he was, he visited every ruin and tried to copy every inscription. If his companion would not turn aside to visit some region of renown and danger, he would go alone and join him later. As they came down the river Tigris in their boat, they passed the immense mound of Nimrod, and so impressed was Layard by it that he then, scarce twenty-three years old, resolved that some day he would search and learn what was hidden under it. But little did he imagine what wonderful monuments he was to find there only a few years later. 
without a servant as poor men in a caravan of fanatical and hostile persian pilgrims returning from the shrines just travellers trying to go by land through persia and afghanistan to india and ceylon they left baghdad it was a time of unusual danger for the british minister had been recalled from the persian court and war with england was threatened they were taken for spies and sent to the presence of the shah and forbidden to follow the route they had chosen and which had been marked out for them by the council of the royal geographical society to report on rivers and mountains and ruins not yet explored they were insulted and robbed and their lives were often in danger but at last they received from the shah their firmans now they separated his companion felt that he must go by the quickest route to his destination but layard had no definite date before him and he was anxious to perform the commissions of the geographical society so he plunged alone into fresh dangers but there is no space to tell the rest of the story of his adventures among the bakhtiari of his copying of inscriptions of his return to baghdad and his decision to give up the plans of life in ceylon and of his return from baghdad again to schuster and persiopolis and other ancient cities of persia and his exploration of the karen river and his geographical paper on the subject his opening of british trade and his return to constantinople at mosul he found that m bata was planning to explore the mounds across the tigris that covered ancient nineveh and he warmly encouraged his plans at constantinople he visited sir stratford canning and delivered to him despatches that had been confided to his care in view of a threatened war between persia and turkey here he was kept in the service of the british embassy and entrusted with important and delicate negotiations and investigations which were so highly appreciated by sir stratford that he kept him as his attache meanwhile m bata had begun his excavations of a palace of king sargon at Korsabad, and was sending his reports and drawings to paris they were all sent by way of constantinople and by m bata's generosity were all seen by mr layard so deeply was he interested in them and so intense was his desire to carry on excavations himself that he secured his release from the embassy and also a grant of three hundred dollars from sir stratford's own purse which with what he could spare from his own money would he hoped suffice to begin the work when if anything of value appeared it was trusted that funds would be secured from english friends of oriental learning thus six years after leaving england mr layard well equipped in knowledge of the people and in diplomatic experience was ready to launch on his great career which brought him fame and earned him the post in later years of british ambassador at the port which sir stratford had held and what is far greater gave to the world the larger part of its knowledge of the lost empires of assyria and babylonia with these few hundred dollars and contributing every penny of his own income in october of eighteen forty five he left constantinople without companion or servant went by steamer to samsun and then as fast as post horses could climb or gallop over mountains and plains he reached mosul in twelve days here at last he was fitted for his task supplied for the accomplishment of his passion the arabs say i had a horse but no desert i had a desert but no horse now i have a desert and a horse and shall i not ride his boyhood with the artists of italy and learning the languages of the continent had fitted him for his task then his study of all the books of eastern travel then half a year wandering with a trained companion through asia minor and syria scarcely leaving untrod one spot hallowed by tradition or unvisited one ruin consecrated by history with no protection but his arms living with the people and learning their prejudices and customs 
Then an irresistible desire had brought him to the regions beyond the Euphrates, and the mystery of Assyria, Babylonia, and Chaldea had fascinated him, so that he had visited the land of Nimrod, seen the site of their old buried capitals, had been the guest in the tents of Shamar and Anaza Arabs, and even passed on to see the famous forty columns of Kilmanar, and to penetrate the mountain fastnesses where the Bakhtiari maintained a perilous freedom. Never was man better trained by enthusiasm and experience for his task, and the late discoveries of M. Bata had inflamed his desire to surpass what his French friend had done. End of section 20